This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oats of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and he said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, And gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the young calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of a woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, and about this time next year, And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, Oh, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Amen. Thank you, Kelly. And welcome this morning again, all of you who are with us in person, those who are online. We know we have a bunch of people on vacation this week, as we will continue to see in the next few, probably. So what a contrast. If you were paying attention as Kelly just read this, or if you've studied it this week, what a contrast between this daylight scene and the nighttime scene that we will see in one chapter later, chapter 19. It's literally a picture of light versus darkness when you compare the way that these visitors are welcomed. There's little debate as to who these three are. The two men who will leave the scene after this meal are called angels in the next section. And they will go to Sodom to destroy it. And of course, we know that Scott's going to preach this next week. We know that because of Abraham's intercession, pleading, bargaining with the Lord, then God is going to spare a few people in Sodom. But the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. Now, the one who stays behind, the two men who leave, they're angels. We're told that in chapter 19. But the one who stays behind, Abraham, Abraham bows to him. He calls him Lord, that's little Lord, the word Adonai there. You could say Adonai to God. You could also say, as Sarah says in this chapter, or later in this chapter, Sarah says to Abraham. So, little Lord. But Moses starts off this chapter, verse 1, you see that? And the Lord 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What's that word in Hebrew? Anybody know? It's Yahweh, right? This is God's name. And the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham. So this person is the pre-incarnate Christ. Many people believe, most people believe. And this is the one that Abraham will plead to in the next session, uh, section for the sake of nephew Lot and his family. Now these two chapters are going to build to the, the climax. The climax is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we will uh, continue that in a couple of weeks. But the Lord first came to Abraham in this, in, in, and visited with him at his tent. Number one, to have fellowship with him and his wife Sarah. Uh, but the Lord also came to visit these two because, and this is important, I think this is the crux of this text. He came to visit these two because Sarah needed to be brought, as Derek Kidner writes it, into believing participation. So let's look at this text then under these two main points, the visit and the challenge. Now, the scene may have been high noon. It may have been high noon. It says it's the heat of the day. Abraham is, is sitting in front of his tent. It's, it's hot. Uh, maybe it's, it, you know, he's just inside the door. Maybe there's a little bit of shade, but it's hot. Probably everybody is on siesta. You know, there's nobody working at that time. Everybody's cooling it somewhere. And, and there's little shade. And so maybe, you know, Abraham's nodded off a little bit. Maybe he's in full-blown snore, but he hears sandals on the sand in front of him. And he looks up and he sees these three men. They must have been a distance away. Let's, let's give them 20 yards because what did Abraham do? I love this. He got up and he ran to these three. Can I just interject here? I, I, would, I hope and I pray that when I'm 99, I'll still be able to run. Amen? And you too, right? So he runs, and it was, in, it was not dignified for Jewish men to run. We know that from the, the parable of the prodigal son. That just wasn't done. Jewish men didn't run to anybody to, shade, you know, to, to show their emotion in that way. But here Abraham runs, and he falls, falls down before them, and... He may not have known who they were at first, but he knew they weren't the welcome wagon. He knew they certainly wasn't the, you know, the rainbow vacuum cleaner guy that comes around every now and then. He knew that these were, this was a very different visit. That's why he ran, and that's why he bowed down. That's why he entreated them to stay. Please don't pass me by. Please don't pass by your servant. You see how he refers to himself? I am your servant. Abraham was a great man. He was a man of great honor, great wealth, great renown. And he says, I'm your servant. Look at the ways that Abraham showed hospitality to these three men. He offered water for their feet. He offered shade tree for their comfort and a morsel of bread. You see what he said? That? He said, I'm going to get you a morsel of bread. That's just a little bit of, uh, you know, shading there, Abraham. Come on, you're underselling the pita bread, which is literally what that would have meant. A piece of pita bread was a little bit less than what it turned out to be. He goes and tells Sarah to quickly need how many three sias, sayas, however you say that word, three sias of flour. Now, if you, if you have a little note in your Bible, then you'll know that three sias of flour is not a little amount. It comes to, when you do the calculation, check it out, five gallons of flour. Imagine, wives, your husband pops into the kitchen and says, hey, we got a big crowd coming. Go ahead and knead and bake five gallons of flour. 
<laughs> and you would say to him, okay, never mind, don't say it. And then he runs again. Abraham runs to, uh, to the calf, right? Bad day for the calf. He finds a good one and a young one, and he, t- he gives, it, gives it to his young man, whoever that is, a servant, and he says, prepare this quickly. And then he grabs a whole tub of yogurt, which is what our best guess is that curds was. It wasn't cheese. That didn't, that wasn't, at that time, wasn't contemporary. Cheese didn't happen yet. Probably some kind of yogurt consistency. And then a bunch of milk, gallons of milk. And they set all that down before these three men for a feast. Right? You say, well, that's, that's a little bit exaggerated, right? A little bit over the top. You got three guys. You know, how much food do they need? But this was the Bedouin way. And Abraham is standing while they are sitting and eating under the shade tree. He's standing there because as a Bedouin, as someone who showed hospitality in that time and in parts of the world today, you stand. Why? Because the, the, the visitors are more important than the resident. And he wants to show them hospitality. I like what Honor Glasgow said. Some people make you feel at home. Others make you wish you were. So what's going on here? Maybe on one level, this is a test for Abraham. Maybe God is testing him to see how's he, how is he going to respond to these three strangers. I think he passed the test, don't you? On another level, it may be a beautiful illustration. Many people point to Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You ever thought about that? You have a stranger into your home? It may be an angel. Right? I'm not sure that we've ever, ever had, and the only angel lives in my house I'm married to, but there are angels that may come to your house to visit with you, and you never know it. So what's going on here? As we've said many, many, many uh, times, if I can just interject to this section, many times one of the most powerful places of ministry, you don't have to get on a plane, you don't have to raise support, you don't have to go to a foreign country. One of the most powerful places of ministry is your own dining room table. Okay? We, we really are called to make our homes an embassy, and, 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 and an embassy is a place where the king is represented. We have a home, that's our embassy. We have a king, his name is Jesus, and we're called to be what? Ambassadors. We call, we're called to represent the king. And one of the best places to bring someone in who doesn't know Jesus to represent the king to him is around a meal. You break bread with someone and their hearts begin to soften a little bit. You ever seen that? And maybe not just for those who are lost, but for those who are saved. Just to bring people in who already know Jesus to get to know them better, to introduce them maybe to something about the king that they don't know or for you to be introduced to something you don't know. So on a third level in this story, I mean, let's break it down right here. God came to dinner. Right? God came to dinner. You say, well, I wish he'd come to my house for dinner. You know what? He does. This is what Jesus said in John 14, 23. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's not pie in the sky, down the road, after we die. That's right now. God comes and meets with us. He also promised He would prepare a place for us so we would go and be with Him. He said, I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Listen, saints, God comes to dinner every time we sit down around the table together, even just as a family. 
God's there in our midst. Right? Amen? God comes to dinner when we break bread and celebrate the cross and the, and the empty tomb as we'll do today after the sermon. This cup, Jesus said, is my, the new covenant in my, in my blood. And finally, gloriously, we sing about this today, God will call us all to dinner one day at the final trumpet sound when we're raised to meet Jesus in the air. First thing, we're going to dinner. You know, one of my favorite things all summer is our summer vacation at Holden Beach, and we'll do that next starting next Saturday. We'll be gone for a week. And sometimes our whole family, it's usually our whole family, sometimes when a new baby comes into the picture, then then Kansas can't come. But if we're all there, it's like, you know, we, we, we get together and we enjoy a week together and we all love it. And one of our favorite things to do is go out to eat together, you know? Table for 21, please. You got a table for 21. And you, you have those memories too, right? Your favorite memory of your family all gathered together, whether it's at the beach or whether it's Thanksgiving or whether, whether it's Christmas. We love that. If we're a normal family, we love that, right? Well, look, multiply that times in an infinite number, and then multiply your favorite meal in your favorite restaurant with your family by an incalculable amount, and you might get kind of the picture of what we're going to experience in that great getting up morning when we are called to dinner. And we're sitting there at this table with all the other believers from history, everybody's there, and it's not like Jesus is way down there. We can just barely see. It looks like a little ant sitting at the... No, no, we're... In some way, we will be close enough to see him and to touch him. I believe that with all my heart. Everybody. So that's what we're seeing here. A little picture, a little glimpse Abraham gets of glory. Well, that's the visit. Then comes the challenge. Look at verse 9. Everybody look down at your Bible. Look at verse 9. You see the question there? They ask Abraham. Say it with me. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now look, this is not a location question. Does Do, do God and the two angels know where Sarah is? <laughs> they know exactly where she is. They know she's right on the other side of the tent door. And we all know what it's like in tents, right? You can hear everything outside the tent. I was thinking about the camping trip, Dick, that we had years ago. Probably the orchids and the foxes are the only, only people here that would remember this. But years ago, we had a camping trip, and we were all in tents, you know. I think it was Tanglewood or someplace. And one of the families in the middle of the night heard a, a little scruffing, you know, a little scratching and stuff outside their tent. And she opened the tent flap and looked out, and it was a skunk, <laughs> right, messing around. Thankfully, the skunk didn't see her, and he kept his fumigant to himself. But here is Sarah inside the tent. They knew where she was. They're not asking Abraham. He thinks they're asking really, literally where is she. And so he tells them. But they knew, right? And so the question is not where is Sarah standing right now, Abraham? But what is Sarah believing right now? You see, it was one of those Adam, where are you questions? You know, I see you, Adam, hiding behind that tree, wearing those silly, you know, fig leaves and pretending like, you know, you're, you're okay. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is God asking Sarah. I got my pages out of, out of order here. Hold on. This is God asking Sarah, hey, I want you to have an honest come to Jesus moment with me because I want you to know 
where you are right now. So the Lord then speaks to Sarah through Abraham, right? That's what he's doing here. He's talking to Abraham, but he's telling him stuff Abraham already knows, and, and Sarah knows it too, but she doesn't believe it yet. He tells Abraham exactly what he's told Abraham in the previous chapter. If Abraham was not fully convinced that this was God before this, he knows now because he calls Sarah by her name that he had given her last chapter. He changed her name to Sarah from Sarai. And then he says the same thing, right? He says, uh, about this time next year, your wife Sarah will bear you a son. I mean, he, he's saying this is on the schedule <laughs> This is not a Delta flight. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen on time. Everything has been settled in heaven, and what's settled in heaven will happen on earth. And listen, your wife is going to have, Sarah, you're going to have a child, a son, in about a year. Now, when Sarah heard that, you can see in verse 12, she laughed to herself. Did the Lord hear the Lord hear that? Yes. And then she said to herself, after I'm worn out, my Lord's old, shall I have pleasure? Did the Lord hear that? Yes, he did. Even though she said it in her brain. Maybe she whispered it. Maybe there was a little autumn, but he heard it. Why'd she say that? Because physically she and her husband were, were advanced in years, and as she said, the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. Now, not to get too technical here, all that means is she's no longer having a cycle, therefore it was physically impossible for her to have a baby. That was true. God knew that. She knew that. Physically impossible. But the spiritual reason for her answer, for her laughter, is the heart of the matter. She laughed because she did not believe God the way Abraham believed God. The wife did not believe God the way the husband believed God. Do we ever see that today? Yes. You know what's more common? Yeah. The husband does not believe God the way the wife believes God. I think that was the first, I think that was the most important reason for this visit before God deals with Abraham about Sodom. I really believe that's why this happened the way it happened. Before God allows Abraham to stretch his faith by by praying this remarkable prayer to Almighty God about what God's already decided to do in Sodom and Gomorrah, before that, he gently confronts Sarah about her, let's be, be honest, about her unbelief. This was important for her relationship with God to deal with her unbelief. It was important for her relationship with her husband. It would be important for her relationship with her son who's going to be born, whether she really believes it or not, in a year. Saints, that's true today as it is. it was then. That's why God's word is clear. Young people, listen. Do not marry an unbeliever. The Bible's clear on that. You will be unequally yoked if you marry someone who is not saved. Now, some people do that, and sometimes by God's grace, that spouse who is not saved, God brings to repentance, and they're born again. But not always. We all know that that's true, don't we? But look, even for two believers, God's desire 
is that the husband and the wife are both pursuing the Lord with all their hearts. God's desire for every marriage under heaven is that the husband and the wife both pursue the Lord. And we've all seen this diagram, right? If the man and the woman are both pursuing God, what happens to their marriage? It, it gets better, right? They get closer together. But when one's pursuing and the other one's stuck down here, you know, in his little world or her little world, and they're really not interested in going deeper with Christ, then the marriage is going to suffer. And certainly their relationship with one another is going to suffer. Notice in this text, too, it's God who confronts Sarah about her unbelief. Now, he does it through Abraham, but he confronts Sarah through what he says to her through Abraham and through the tent flap that she's hiding behind. Right? She laughed. She laughed at the word of the Lord. And you think, well, that's no big deal. I mean, she makes you a little nervous laughter. No, she's laughing from unbelief. You ever, ever talk to somebody about the Lord and they just laugh in your face? Now, she wasn't hard-hearted to that point, but we know, we know that's a condition that God can deal with. But sometimes you're talking to somebody and they just laugh. <laughs> no, man, I don't believe any of that. In fact, I think you're the one who's deluded or deceived, they say to you. But she laughs at the word of the Lord. And he was speaking to her heart when he says, why did Sarah laugh? He's, thinking, he's talking to Abraham. He's the head. He's the, he's the leader in that family. But he's speaking directly to Sarah. Sarah, why did you laugh? Why did you laugh? And then he gives the essential message in this passage. This is it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You probably have a note at the bottom of your page that says the word hard can also be translated wonderful. I love that. So is anything too hard for the Lord... Or is anything too wonderful for the Lord or so full of wonder that we say, no, nah, that's not possible? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That was the question he asked Sarah. God asked us to believe him, to trust him, and, and, and especially in these promises when he's making to us that there's nothing too wonderful for him, nothing that is simply impossible for him to do. Now look, it was physically impossible for Sarah to have a baby. Not for the Lord. You can make it happen, right? It was physically impossible for Mary to have a baby, even more so because she was a virgin. Not for the Lord. Listen, it was physically impossible for the children of Israel to survive the Pharaoh's army when they're backed up against the Red Sea. Physically impossible. Not for the Lord. It was physically impossible for Daniel to come crawling out of the lion's den the next morning or for those three Hebrew boys to come walking out of that furnace. And everybody said, not for the Lord. You say, well, you don't know my husband. <laughs> or some of you say, you don't know my wife. It'll never change. It is impossible. Not for the Lord. You may say of yourself, I can never be free of this sin. I can never be free from this guilt, from previous sin. 
I can never be free from the shame. I can never be free from whatever. You fill in the blanks. It is impossible for me. Guys, can we emphasize it any more strongly than this? Not for the Lord. And that's what he's trying to give Sarah understanding that day so she will come into partnership with Abraham in a new way where they can truly worship the Lord in the same way together with hearts that are filled with amazement and awe at God's being able to do what's impossible. He wants the same thing for you and me, for each one of us, for every future marriage representing represented in this place. But I tell you what has to happen, you know this, it has to happen in my life, it has to happen in your life when you're struggling with unbelief. We have to overcome we have to overcome our own, own excuses and our own self-justification. We want to be free from a certain sin that has us in its grip. We have to overcome the self-justification we go to every time when we practice that sin. We have to overcome the excuses we make for, well, you know, you just don't understand. I mean, I was really tired. Whatever. When the Lord asked Abraham why Sarah laughed, Sarah finally spoke out loud and said, I did not laugh. So now she's, she first she laughed at God's word. Now she's lying to his face. She's justifying herself. She's making an excuse. How do we overcome our unbelief? What's the antidote for unbelief, everybody? It's not pray, Hail Marys. It's not, you know, give more money to the church. It's not read your Bible more. It's not go to church every Sunday. What's the antidote for unbelief? The answer is in the word. <laughs> belief! We simply choose to believe and take God at His word. And that's what God is asking Sarah to do. Look, I know you don't believe because you've reasoned this in your mind and you figured it out that you're too old and he's too old and there's no way. And I agree with you. There's no way for you to have that baby. But don't, put my, don't, put, don't bring me down to your level. You know, like somebody said, let, let God be God. Let people be people. People can't do the impossible. God can. Let's not limit God in our thinking. God hears all of our excuses. He knows all of our justifications for sins, and he comes to us anyway. He brings a mountain of grace to exchange for that pitiful pocket full of reasons for our favorite sins. He tells us the truth. No, but you did laugh. No, but you don't believe here. No, but you don't trust me here. No, but you don't believe I can do this for you if you'll give me everything. And he waits for us to believe him, that there's nothing too hard, nothing too wonderful for the Lord to do. So we're going to see a different Sarah. We don't see it yet, but we're going to see a different Sarah. And as a result, we're going to see a different Abraham and Sarah as well. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that you are... God, and beside you there is no other, and that you uh, speak of that which does not exist as though it does. Uh, you created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. You created that baby in, uh, in, um, in Mary's womb, uh, Lord, by miraculous beings. You created the, the baby in, in Sarah's womb. Miraculously, you can do the impossible even when it looks like um, there's no hope. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, all of us, that we would get on that pyramid and move, move towards you.
uh, Lord, by faith, not by works, but faith that, that, that develops works or produces works, but faith, belief that you are God. And we love you and we thankful, are thankful this morning that you're doing that even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.